Hey, Matt, good to see you again. It's that time of the week, right, for you and I to have a chat. And we haven't had a chat for a while because we had some great guests on. So I'm looking forward to just you and me talking to each other again. How have you been? Oh, you know, I've been great. I have to admit that running has been a little bit more of an issue as hot as it's been this summer. And I have an 11-year-old. So what I'm doing right now is running with the Velcro for about 10 seconds, letting the Velcro go and running for another 10 seconds or so. So I'm enjoying that, but that's the kind of running I'm doing these days with my daughter Mia in the mornings before it gets too hot or later on at night. Uh, A lot of fun actually, but yeah, I'm not ready to race. We'll just put it this way. And that's been a bit more of a challenge. This summer's been hot. How about you guys? It gets pretty hot even where you're at, right? Yep. Now we've been high 90s and pretty humid. We've been having a, a lot more rain than we used to. And then I have a bunch of my athletes up in the Northeast that are really still struggling after literally months now with smoke from the fires. And I was just telling one of the coaches that I work with, one of our elite athletes, telling him this morning that, you know, this idea of trying to do heat and humidity training and doing it at altitude and training hard for a championship race (coughs) is too much stress. You have to choose, right? And so uh, I've literally got one of my athletes indoors now. She's got a whole lot of lung issues going on from the smoke, even though she's only doing her easy stuff out there, but it's still too much. Yeah, I was going to say, so back in the day when I was a hotshot for Flagstaff Hotshots, we knew these days were coming where you no longer just have summer, but you basically have uh, fire as a season almost, right? And that duff has really accumulated over time. And we've done too good of a job in some senses of stopping fires. I know that we have to protect our homes and that is the conundrum right there. But just over those years, I will tell you one, that it took a lot of time for me when I finished hot shotting to get my lungs back, so to speak. So those people listening, if the air quality is not great, I know it's not your first choice, but maybe get on that woodway, get on the airdyne and just put in some work there and save your lungs for that day. And because it, it does take a while to restore some of that and the more that you're exposed to that, I think the the more damaging it can be in the long term for you. I estimate that it took me about a year before I started to really get my capacity back and about a year after that to where I was able to really feel like myself again with my breathing and my running. So silver lining to that was that I started to really pay a lot more attention to breathing and how I use that breathing for my running. So I think ultimately I became a better runner for it. But just keep that stuff in mind, guys. And with the heat, of course, we always just want to be safe out there and realizing that you are going to be exposed if you're training for a race that's going to be quite hot and you need to get used to that. Fantastic. But Those recovery issues are something that I think we can talk a lot more about in a future podcast. Let us know if that's something you're interested in, and we can talk more about heat training as well. 
Yeah, and with the smoke, there's only really one advantage, right? You just get a little less sunburn because that particulate matter reflects reflects the rays away from you. Uh, but just remember, your lungs are, are mucousy little bags, right? And this stuff accumulates right down in the bottom of your lungs and in the corners of your lungs. And as Matt was saying, it takes a long time to get it out. As endurance athletes, it's it's it helps to to get that muck up, but uh, pay attention. Yeah, and the last thing that I have this little service announcement, but when I was hot shotting they for a season, they asked me to carry a sensor. And I did that, and they came back to me with the data at the end of that season and said it was the equivalent of you smoking two to three packs a day every day. That's the kind of uh, damage we can be talking about. Of course, hot shotting, you are exposed to even heavier conditions with the smoke and things like this. But still, it was quite daunting to realize I had become a smoker without realizing it. Just keep that in mind. Stay healthy out there make smart decisions. Sometimes that means stay inside. Yeah. And pay attention to those air quality numbers that you get from your phone or from your television. Welcome to the Run Form Podcast. I'm Bobby McGee, running mechanics expert. And I'm Matt Pandola, your run-specific strength coach. Matt and I have been working together for almost a decade on some of the top athletes in the world, and we've decided to share that process with you guys. Okay, guys, so uh, what we're going to talk about this week is uh, we're going to look at the concept that is reasonably new, and obviously, again, the Stride device can give you a number on this, but it's called leg spring stiffness, right? And I think that what's important in a conversation about leg spring stiffness as a newer concept versus, say, ground contact time, right? And we spoke about ground contact time in in a previous show, but that's the amount of time that your foot is on the ground in milliseconds, right? Whereas this is measured in force, Newton meters, right? And it's quite complex. So A, there's two kinds of springs in the body, right? They are like coil springs that you can look at. And then there are mostly leaf springs, right? So a piece of carbon fiber that you bend creates uh, elastic loading. And when you let that piece of carbon fiber go, it returns energy in the opposite direction, right? So that's a large part of what leg spring stiffness is. And this mostly occurs in the tendons, the ligaments, and the connective tissue of the body, right? So we talk about that triple spring concept, whether it's sprinting or whether it's distance running, right? So it's that all-important spring of the foot, the arch, the ankle, which is number one. And then number two is the knee spring, right? And I, I always try and remind people that your knee is set like a piece of carbon fiber in a flexed position. When you straighten it, you are loading that leaf spring, and then it unloads when it flexed. So when you extend it, it's loading, and when you flex it, it's unloading in, in a running term. And then lastly, the hip. The hip is your third of, of, of those springs, right? And now your hip flexes, which are like your psoas, your rectus femoris, your iliacus, on the front side of your hip, that is a spring that loads when your knee goes past your hip at the back and helps in resetting that, that foot on the ground. Yeah, and I just want to make a quick comment about 
the cross extensor reflex, right? So when we've had that conversation before about just setting our knee up and on a single leg stance and then just quickly beating gravity down and then feeling that opposite hip that's grounded extend, right? And that's a concept that I think here is important to review a little bit because there's the knee bend that you just mentioned and even the hip. And that's something I feel like a lot of runners have a misconception about. I've I've talked to a lot of people that think that their knee uh, should not bend at all. Like any breaking through their knee is a bad thing or that they're trying to essentially use their glutes to the point where, like we've mentioned before, you can't run with fully fired glutes, right? So this is all about the load and explode, the elasticity that we can generate. And so we don't want to be overly stiff or overly conscious about what we're doing there as well. Yeah, so I think in in a conversation like this, uh, a model might be a good idea, right? So I often use a model of a pogo stick, but a pogo stick has that coil spring in it, right? So you've got those two foot foot holders that you put your feet on, and then you compress the spring with your momentum down in against gravity, and then that spring unloads. But I would suggest that when you look at the human body, you view that spring not as a coil spring, but as a little folded up carbon fiber spring, right? Because when you load that and it unloads, that's a little bit more of how how that body functions, right? Over and above that natural capability of tissue to have springiness. Some people have more springiness. Some people have less springiness. In Matt and I's world is we look on look at a number of things, not only increasing the access to your springiness that you have, right? So in other words, working with the muscles and the tendons and the ligaments themselves to increase that elasticity, but there's also the consideration from the top down. What are we working against when we're running, right? We're working against inertia, right? So we've got to overcome resistance, all right, and we have to overcome gravity step after step. So when somebody's accelerating smoothly on the track or on the road, inside of that acceleration are braking moments and acceleratory moments. Every time you put your foot on the ground, you brake. So it's not a question of the best runners in the world don't brake at all. The best runners in the world brake the least, all right? And so now, and, and Matt and I have become increasingly aware of this as we work with individuals, right? That there's a finite amount of springiness that you can add to somebody, but there's a huge amount of containing and stabilizing and sorting out the direction of this elastic return. That's where we can do a huge amount and where a lot of people, even the pros, display lacks in capability or even realizing how much power leakage there is. So take that pogo stick again and push it down into the ground, right? And then bend it. That impacts how not only the direction, but also the force of the return of that, right? So you can be the springiest person in the world, but too upright, too much vertical oscillation. You're using all that elastic return to go up and down. And up and down in our world 
is as a result of fatigue. As fatigue sets into the structures of the hip, the groin, all right, the pelvis, the knees, so things become shortened up. Launch ankles change. You start launching too upright. And so your cadence stays the same. Your stride length gets shorter and your vertical oscillation goes up for the same intensity or the same speed. Yeah, and I there's couple things I want to be even vulnerable about here as a coach before I really started to work with you. And I'm saying now, geez, 15 years ago, I was talking to a runner. We happened to go out for a trail run a couple weeks ago. And he said, Matt, I'm still doing the things you taught me. I run nice and tall. And I went, oh, okay. We've got to talk. And I had already picked it up watching him run. And I was in my mind thinking, okay, here we go. I'm going to end up having to retract my statement, right? And that's how I was taught, right? And it's a good overall concept if you consider that pearl that we talk about that needs to be slightly forward under or in your center of mass, right? Under your sternum, between your belly button and your sternum, and then hinging through the ankles a little bit more. And that long, strong concept still stands true in a sense to me, but with a little bit of a caveat here where we have to talk about what that really means. But yeah, we're, that's what I was hoping that you would get to and talk about when I said that we have misconceptions about what should be uh, able to absorb force because we ultimately have to put on the brakes at least a little bit. The old me was thinking, okay, we can bypass that. <laughs> And ironically, by trying to bypass that, we were making that even uh, harder to do. So yeah, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's what I've learned. And so we're trying to make sure the audience understands this today. Yeah, there are so many subtleties in that whole conversation, right? This is one of those podcasts that's really hard to do without visuals, right? But if you consider yourself from the top of your head to the bottom of, of your forefoot or your midfoot, right? like a ruler, right? Like a plastic ruler. That ruler can flex in multiple ways, right? So if you are, let's say you've got a nice optimal angle of attack, right? You've got a nice forward lean. And I remember forward lean is predicated also on velocity, right? So the faster you run, the more you can forward lean. If you lean too far forward from the ankles and are running very slowly, you get something that's called over-rotation, right? That means that your foot comes through and is moving forward when you hit the ground. All right, so now you're putting on the brakes more. And we know that foot should gather the ground, but it's not gathering the ground because you're running with a circular motion. All right, you're not pushing your foot backwards. You're pushing your foot straight down, but your momentum moves your pelvis on top of your foot by the time your foot impacts the ground. So your foot speed relative to your hip speed is going slower. And a lot of people, when they straighten their knee and they're looking for the ground with their heel out in front of them, in other words, they have a reaching running style or a floaty running style, they're actually increasing their foot speed relative to their hip speed, making the braking more egregious, right? Yeah. So that's, that's such a a hard concept to understand, but let's rather just stick with that concept of the ruler, right? So if the ruler hits the ground and say the pelvis goes forward, so the ruler bends forward, right? 
that means that some of that elastic energy is being dissipated. All right. And so you want to keep that rib cage really squarely on top of the pelvis. All right. And quite rigidly on top of the pelvis so that you don't lose that elastic return. And so, Matt, your specialty is for people to realize that muscles cannot push. So if you need to push down, remember when you're hitting the ground as a runner, your leg is under the one side of your pelvis. The other side is hanging in space, coming down to the ground one and a half to three, 3.2, 3.3 times your body weight, depending on how fast you're running. And it's completely stuck in space there. And when it hits the ground, that unsupported side of the pelvis wants to drop down, right? And the the chest then wants to go the other way because it wants to stop you going to that side, right? So that complexity of strengthening, empowering, stabilizing, coordinating, balancing, that all plays a role in how your leg spring stiffness is expressed. So you might only have X Newton meters of leg spring stiffness, and with the stride device, it's showing up what you are producing. You might have a lot more available that you get access to when you start strengthening and then powering up and increasing the speed with which you can contract and stabilize your pelvis on top of that, right? So you can lose power by having your pop chopped your chest away from your pelvis. So you would lose power going up that way instead of forward, right? You can lose power by your hip going up into your midsection towards your ribs. Now you landing with that soft basketball, all right? All of those things detract from your natural leg spring stiffness. So you can take the leg spring stiffness you have, look at the number and say, that might not be my absolute leg spring stiffness. I might be power leaking all over the place. Let me get with Pendola and McGee and see if I can contain that a little bit. Yeah, and I little concept here. First of all, because we do have this on YouTube, you might want to see some of the visuals we're talking about. That ruler is a perfect example. But when I first assess an athlete, I will look at a couple of key components. Now, one, just reaching overhead. And you will see that pop top a lot of times because they're trying to get that range overhead. And we will see this to get that range, right? So they think they're getting that range, but all they're really doing is filling their spine to get there, right? Now, the other key concept we tend to look at is just when somebody level changes down, especially in a squat, And we'll see that torso lose position. In other words, it's if you've got longer femurs, your torso is going to go further forward when you squat down. But are you matching that torso line parallel to the shin? That's one of the things I look at. So is your shin and your torso coming down together? Why that's important is because it tells me you're connecting the top of your body and the lower part of your body together. In other words, imagine you're trying to keep the shoulder girdle and the hip girdle connected as you level change. So that concept is really the base of what uh, we're talking about because without that proximal stiffness, 
we cannot have the distal athleticism we're looking for. That's a Stuart McGill, I believe, concept of irradiation that I think really plays in well with this conversation. Yeah, so it's so easy without the right correctly trained eye to look at somebody have this beautiful extension out the back, but not realizing that extension is unloaded because the they've lost the pelvis. So the pelvis is anteriorly rotated in order for them to get that great back kick. So there's no elastic loading in the front of the hip there. That hip needs to be down. And the sprint coaches will often come to us distance coaches and go, you guys have got an eighth of the story here. That figure that you see that looks like Kip Kano and uh, what was the guy that won the 1500 against him with a with the white Norton, northern European guy and the black African in exactly the same position. They have that beautiful extension out the back, but their pelvises are square. So in other words, there's loading in the front of that pelvis and it's able to shoot that knee back underneath them so that they can reset their foot. But if you are achieving that extension by anteriorly rotating your pelvis and your core gives way, now you are over-rotating, you're stuck, right? So we talk about front-end mechanics in running, in distance running, are extremely important, but there's no part of front-end mechanics that should be in contact with the ground. But you set your front-end mechanics up while you're in the air so that your mid-mechanics and your back-end mechanics are appropriate, right? So there is that little bit of the seated look in transition that you have to have, right? You can't be tall through there. So when people say, I was always told to run tall, and I said to him, yeah, you're, running tall is good, but that doesn't mean that your chest disconnects from your pelvis. It doesn't mean to say you posteriorly rotate your chest and you anteriorly rotate your pelvis to achieve that look. Right, and there's just nothing between your rib cage and the top of your pelvis. All it is is a big old spongy shock absorption for all this hard work that you're putting into leg spring stiffness, and then it's just going to waste in your midsection, right? As as you transition across. Yeah, and I think for those people who are interested in our run form program, that's where we do have a graduated pr approach over twelve weeks towards mastery and then you know i get this question a lot actually is you get that program it's yours forever because a lot of people are repeating that program and i encourage that for at least another cycle to really start to get these concepts down from that unconscious incompetence where you don't even realize you're doing that where you're actually rotating your pelvis and then we're slowly starting to adapt those changes. We're able to set your knee in front of you in those front end mechanics. But that's something that's a gradual, graduated approach, especially if you've been running for a long time, right? If you're confused listening to this, how do I change that? There's, there is those four steps of learning that I think it's worth just reminding people of is that we do have to first be aware of what's going on. And then we have to start to make mistakes while we are in that learning process. And then eventually you're holding your, your form for a longer period of time. Maybe at first it's a minute at a time and then longer and longer, you're holding your posture, letting it flow out of you and just give it time. If you've spent 30 years in a certain position, then uh, spending a few months really isn't a lot of time when you think of it that way. 
it's absolutely essential that you take that on board, right? I was a phys ed teacher for 12 years, and that's where my degree was in, right, in human movement studies when I started out in university. And the amount of times that it dawned on me as, a, as an acutely aware physical education student when I went into teaching that coaches at that time would say, go and warm up. And then the coach would go and deal with administration and organization, would not pay attention to the warm-up. Even if the athletes were doing drills or in those days, passive stretches and stuff like that, right? The coach wouldn't pay attention to how the athletes were doing those things. It literally should be the other way around. When you start running in your workout, all right, then it's about effort management and that kind of thing. But the key parts are the setup the warm-up, the preparation, all those activities, that's where you should be paying attention. I had the experience the other day, I was working with one of my Olympic athletes and I had some junior athletes getting ready for World Junior Championships also in attendance and I worked with them afterwards. And I was so struck, this athlete that I was working with is a swimmer, she grew up as a swimmer, but I've been working with her now for two years, right? And I was so struck by how differently she moved when I started working with the younger athletes again. There was a 17-year-old and I think there was a 19-year-old. Started working with these two athletes and I realized that all that they were short was that period of mastery. All right? And the same thing with Flora. Flora said most of these things took her about 18 months before she really started to feel that she owned them. And this is a person who knows how to move her body in space. And the same with my milers. It's always the same thing. It's just that realization, that attention to detail, cognitive intervention, frequency, not when you're fatigued. This is when you need to start doing these things. There's some of the best sessions of loaded mobility and some of the best sessions of banded dynamics, right? You're not just mindlessly trying to strengthen yourself or add power. Just the process of concentrating slowly through the movement has so much greater value because it increases that awareness. And so I work quite a lot with athletes going, when you start off running or when you start off swimming or when you start off biking, don't be thinking about your form. You've got to be using these mood words. You've got to trust that your body's in a good place. Only when you start falling apart and when you start fatiguing, now you can check in and say, why am I doing this? So this research about stitches, this research is about loss of form, showing that cramps, stitches, all these things are coming from that inability to hold a certain posture which is a really complex conversation and you need a lot of patience and a lot of awareness, right? Distance runners hate recovery. And yet this whole business of learning how to run properly requires a lot of frequency and a ridiculous amount of rest. Yeah, I, I refer to this as patience phase, especially the first few months that you decide you're really gonna go for something like this. If you're not ready to really give that intentional tension, <laughs> then I feel like you're not ready. And as much as I believe in our programs, as much as I believe our programs will serve you, if 
you are not ready for that, then it won't serve you the way that we would like it to. And so really, I was just thinking as you were talking, smiling a lot, because I've had an athlete that in particular, I was been working a lot with. We initially looked at some very simple tests, and one of them was just grip strength. One side was a lot uh, more reduced than the other by more than 15%, actually. I do the numbers. Now, the concept of being able to apply that tension and that irradiation I mentioned, that's why that's a thing that I do like to look at in particular. And so as we're going along, that grip strength is now matching up closer and closer. Okay, so it's less than 10% already after a couple of weeks. And it's getting better, I feel like, every day. But it's not the traditional strength work that she's doing, right? And so I think that's a big concept that I want people to understand because they feel like, oh, wait a minute, I got this program and we're doing lots of form work, we're doing lots of drills, and then for banded dynamics, like I need to grab weights. I need to gra grab weights to get stronger. I'm, I'm going to say this now, and I'm going to say this in 10 years from now. I, we need to look at mobility. We need to look at motor control. We need to master those things. And then we can start talking about variability in loading. Okay. But you just, you don't just contract, you react with bands. It's a perfect learning tool. And I will tell you myself with a marathoner that both you and I are working on, working with, and he's coming along so well. We have him now on his loading phase, twice body weight deadlift. Now, in particular, I bring that up because his loading patterns are not only superior to what we started with, but he also is able to now gulp a little bit more ground because in his case, it was rare that he had a, a higher cadence, really good gathering. And we needed to be able to essentially get a little bit more of that neural drive going for, I call it gulping ground. And so that's a specific case where I feel like, yeah, we, we really need to go there. But that was a specific case. And for those reasons, I believe that it will help him. But I would not have started that with him had he not proven that he was ready for that. Okay. So a lot of things that I feel like when it comes to that uh, proximal stiffness that we accomplish in that first few months of run form and just have that patience phase in your mindset. And you do all of that. You get done with the 12 weeks. You tell me that you're not faster, that you're not more prepared, that your body's not more robust. Now you want to start getting into your base phase where you're starting to really lift heavy shit. Honestly, that's where I believe the programming can really help with the right programming and the light, right heavy work. But that's not something we just dive into, even though you might say to me, hey, I've been lifting heavy for a while. Oh, yeah. How's that working for you? Why does your back always hurt? Why does your hamstring always hurt? What's going on that with that lifting? that you're not more robust then. It's not just as simple as mechanical loading for cyclic action. Like we have to have more stages and steps for that result we want.
Yeah, it's interesting how language creates pictures, right? So often when you say that is a robust individual, you're talking about an individual that looks big and looks strong and so on. And that's not the robust that Matt's talking about. And it brings up a really good point, right? We are promoting what we do as a way for you, A, to run more effectively, which basically means run further at the same pace or run faster for the same distance. All right. So it's a performance conversation. And so kinematics is not the end goal. We don't want you to look a certain way when you run. We want you to perform a certain way. But we use kinematics, whether those are kinematics during dynamic mobility drills or whether they kinematics when you are running to discover what's going on under the surface. So I will look at a runner. I will see something. I will say something to Matt. Matt will take the runner and go do this. And then the runner will fail that test. And then we'll know underneath the hood, what was the kinematics pointing us to? And then we can address that. And then we come back, instead of telling the, the runner, you need to bend your arms more, they're already bending their arms more because we addressed the reason why they weren't bending their arms. So it's such an important thing to understand that running is not ballet. You're not trying to create an aesthetic movement. You're trying to create an effective movement that is A, durable, so that you can load training on it. So you, just like you're trying to add cardiovascular capacity, right? I heard this again the other day, and I, it's fresh in my mind. I love this idea that 80% of your work is aerobic conditioning, and it's depositing money in the bank. 20% of your work is preparing you to race, right? But it's actually withdrawals. It's beating you up to do that 20% of the work. So the greater your capacity can be, the less the 20% is beating you up and the greater the 20% is because it's 20% of a larger capacity. Just so that people start seeing it that way. So we are trying to, through the work that we do, change the way that you load or improve the way that you load but also expand the load that you can handle. So just the simple thing of standing on one leg dynamically, having come down in the ground, realizing that everything must go the opposite way, right? It's just impossible to do that. So a, a PT or a strength and conditioning coach might say, okay, that floating hip is dropping too much. Let's strengthen that hip. And then we start learning, oh, wait a minute, That's he's only on the ground for 20 milliseconds, for 200 milliseconds. That's the only time that he's on the ground for. So no amount of strength is going to make an impact to that. It needs to be really fast when that happens. And then even if it's really fast, it only starts reacting when it starts to drop. So you're already too late. So now the next step comes in. The way you go into the ground needs to be set up differently so that it doesn't show up that way in the first place. So if your hips are going into the ground square, a hip is going to drop. If it drops more than 11%, it's a problem, right? But what happens if you go into the ground and it's not at 90 degrees, it's a little higher. So then when it drops to neutral, less power, less leg spring stiffness wasted, all right? And all of those come about as a result of that start of what are you doing? Why are you doing it? How can we address it?
And in the end, it comes out to, I'm using less oxygen so I can go faster. Hello. <laughs> That's why you're the best, Bobby. I'm For a rare occasion, I'm stumped to add anything. I just listen to that again. <laughs> that should be a clip of ours and listen to the entire clip, not just for seven seconds, right? It's beautifully said. And ultimately, I'll wrap up my part with this is that if you are looking at the entire body, you only get one body. So what you said about capacity, I think about longevity as well. And I know you do too, but it's not just enough with the marathoner I'll talk about because I know Ryan Peel, I know he's totally up for us talking about his process, right? And Ryan wants to be able to do this when he's in his 80s even. He wants to be able to be out there in the woods running fast and free and just be. Okay. And so that is a concept that I am trying to always keep in mind as a coach. Yes, I want people to achieve their PRs and get their best out of themselves. Performance mindset, it doesn't, if you are somebody who is just now trying to go from a five hour marathon to a four and a half hour marathon, you have a performance mindset, especially when you're willing to do the work. But more importantly, I want you to be able to say, Eventually, you want to break that three-hour marathon, and that's your main goal. Fantastic. Now, how are you doing 10 years later? Because those 90-mile weeks may have exceeded your capacity to the point where you say, yeah, I used to be a runner, but it was bad for my knees, so I had to stop. <laughs> Listen to our knee episode, and you'll understand why that's nonsense. But we do have to look at the longevity, and I think that really... For me, if I had to prioritize, I am prioritizing longevity with every athlete, even Ben Knute. I, I absolutely agree with that. And I'd add a little nuance to that, right? That we're trying to get the peripherals to balance up to what the central physiology can do, right? So what the engine puts out, we want the chassis and the wheels and the transmission to be able to handle the bearings and all those kind of things. And that's our stock in trade with run form is everything but the engine, right? But if you expand the mechanical capacity of an individual, you are reducing the relative load because the capacity is greater, right? So if somebody is receiving the ground more effectively, in other words, their ground contact time has decreased, right? Their cadence has increased, all right, that just means that they are absorbing less impact for the same work because we increase their capacity. And that's why for a long time, working on somebody's run form used to be, okay, we do that so that people don't get injured. But that not getting injured has a positive, right? And, and it's not just I'm trying to avoid injuries. It is no, I'm now more consistent. And if there's one piece of research in the world of endurance that is irrefutable through the ages, through the decades, is consistency makes performance. Yeah. It's not how much you <laughs> lift. It's how you're lifting. It's not how much you run. It's how you're running. And that's that final piece I had to say, because talking about 90 mile weeks for a marathoner versus the, I believe, 70-ish miles he's peaking out now, it's more about how he's doing it. And is 90 miles a week bad? No, I don't believe so. But uh, when people come to me and say, yeah, how much should I be lifting or how many miles a week should I be running? And 
I can't answer that until I can see what your capacities really are. And if you've earned the right to lift more, or if you've earned the right to run more distance, that sort of thing. So maybe you can just close off, but I just wanted to point that out. I'm not anti-volume. I'm not anti-lifting heavy, right? I get put in the corner, baby gets put in the corner and I, you know, don't put me in the corner, man. I'm just saying that there are certain, I believe, concepts and that I really believe in. There's a lot of ideas, there's a lot of variability, but there's very few proven concepts. And we are trying to get that out, the proven concepts that we know will help you. Absolutely. I'll also finish off then, Matt, with this is that leg spring stiffness is not only with what you've got that can be improved, but it's how you express that leg spring stiffness. And you guys in the strength and conditioning world are so good at saying power is worth nothing if you can't express it, right? So there's a lot of power involved in running and how you express it becomes very important. It's a multidimensional conversation. And it's a very exciting conversation, right? That you have these latent capacities that you just need to harness to become a better runner, right? You don't have to go back and re-choose your parents so that you can have a higher VO2 max, right? You can improve your performance right away by addressing the power leakage and the things that slow down your progression or stop your progression. That was great, man. Thanks so much once again, man. That's a enjoyable talk this week. There's so much stuff we could get into, but I think we did a reasonable job on touching on the stuff and not getting too much stuck in the weeds like we're fond to do. Because I know every time you say something, I'm going, I got to remember that. I got to jot that down because there's an application that I've not thought of before. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you, Bobby. As always, it was a pleasure. And to finish the podcast off, I would just say, If you do have specific questions, we remind you that on any question you can get on there, ask a specific question. You can always do the old email too. The snail mail is is another way, still exists. But point is that we are here for you. If you have some specific questions that we can help you with, then that's what we're here for. We want you to understand what you're getting into and why. So ask away and we'll see you guys next time. As always, thanks for listening to the RunForm podcast. And as a reminder, we offer a totally free movement improvement assessment on our Pandola Project website. Here, you can get your own personalized protocol that will help your running today. So give that a try. Also, Bobby and I are experts on any question app where you can ask us, well, any question. So reach out to us directly there. Finally, if you learned anything new today, Don't forget to share it with your compadres and leave us a quick review. That really helps us a lot. All the links you need are in the show notes below. Till next time, have a great run. Well, that was was awesome. Yeah.